You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. This evening's scripture is from Matthew 118 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the word of the Lord. God, we do need you. We profess, we confess, we need you. We need to hear from you. We need to be reminded of the gospel. We need to believe the gospel. Father, I need you now to preach your word faithfully. Father, might you do a great work for your people and for your sake and for our good. Amen. May be seated. It's good to see all of you this evening. I love this time of year, especially when St. John has put up the Advent UFO. I feel like I might just be beamed up at any moment, so you'll know what has happened if I disappear. Uh, There are just tons of kids' Christmas specials on TV. Like, you've all watched them since you were children. I don't need to list them out. Uh, You've seen them a thousand times. There are fewer adulty Christmas movies, right? But most of them fall in the same genre, and that is of the romantic comedy. Right? There's like the holiday and love actually, even white Christmas. And then just turn on the Hallmark Channel from like now until Christmas Day and you will see a never ending just marathon of Christmas romance. Actually, don't do that. It'll sap your soul. Don't do that. But why is that? Why is there, why, why are most adult Christmas movies just romantic comedies? There's something about American Christmas sentimentality that pairs the Christmas season with romantic love. There's mistletoe, like most of the most, well, a lot of our most famous Christmas songs are romance songs, Let It Snow, All I Want for Christmas Is You, and the most creepy creepy song that's ever been written, Baby, It's Cold Outside. Really, really weird. Uh, but love, like love, it's in the air around Christmas time. Last week, we thought through how we tend toward using the word hope, how we, as certainly as Americans, 99% of the time, we think of the word, or we use the word hope to really mean wish. So like, I hope it snows on Christmas Eve really indicates a level of uncertainty, which then means I wish it snows on Christmas Eve. When the Bible talks about hope, though, it's talking about certainty, not uncertainty. So when the Bible says something like, for you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth, this is certainty. The promises of God are sure, and we can anchor our souls in them. Well, this week we want to do something similar with the word love. How do we use it? I love coffee. I love pizza. I love 
Bluebell cookies and cream ice cream, and I love the fact that it's finally coming back to Albuquerque. I saw on the news this week. Yes, yes, and there was much rejoicing. Uh, in the sixth grade, I told Katie Hay that I loved her. Nanda, you know Katie, yeah. Uh, uh, when we say we love something, though, we typically mean I enjoy the feelings that that thing gives me. I love the explosion in my mouth with Bluebell Blue cookies and cream ice cream. It's the best. I love that feeling. I loved the feeling that Katie Hay, some girl when I was 12, gave to me, that she liked me. That's pretty cool. I loved the way that she made me feel. But this is not how the Bible thinks about love. Paul Tripp defines love as this. Love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved actually deserves. Love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved actually deserves. So self-sacrifice, better than what the person deserves. In that sense, there's, there's absolutely no way that I can love Bluebell ice cream. There's, there's no way that I can do that. I can enjoy it. I can enjoy the feeling that it gives me. I can be perhaps even infatuated with it. But I can't love it. This year, in thinking through the traditional Advent themes of hope and love and joy and peace, we're going, we're going through several of the birth narratives surrounding Jesus' birth in the Gospel accounts. And this week, we're going to think about Joseph together through the lens of love. And Joseph is far too often just passed over. He's kind of a forgotten man in the gospel accounts. There's just like we, one of my seminary professors says that like he's important, right? But we can tend to just reduce him to what he didn't do rather than what he did. Meaning that to make sure that we uphold the virgin birth, we say that he absolutely, like in a Bill Clinton type way, did not have sexual relations with that woman. But then like, that's it. We just move on. What he didn't do instead of what he did. We close the book on him and then move on to the good stuff. Well, let's slow down a bit this evening and observe a remarkable, remarkable man. This evening we're going to use Joseph as a test case and a model for biblical love. And then through that lens, look through the infinitely deeper love of God. So we'll compare the fatherly love of Joseph and then with the fatherly love of God. So the fatherly love of Joseph. Let's, let's read again from chapter 1 of Matthew, first book of the New Testament, chapter 1, just in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So Joseph and Mary are betrothed. Joseph's this guy from his carpenter from Nazareth. He's likely established himself. He's made a name for himself, established perhaps a reputation as an honorable and quality carpenter. And while we're never told her age, it's likely that Mary is a teenager at this point. And before you think, therefore, that it's okay for older men to date teenagers, as has been outrageously used uh, to defend predatory politicians, first of all, we don't even know Joseph's age. So it's, we don't know that he's like 40 or something, and we don't know Mary's age. They could be the same age for all we're given. We don't know anything yet. But also, this was a cultural and social reality. There was no sneaking around going on here. The betrothal period we read about in verse 18 is a full year. It was well known. The betrothal was 
in the public. Everyone knew about it in their betrothal. There would have been zero romantic or physical contact between the betrothed. And rather than becoming an object of manipulation and power, this betrothal would have treated Mary honorably and with total purity. And then the betrothal culminates then after a year with a long-awaited and expected marriage ceremony and celebration. There's no, nothing going on in the dark here. But somewhere along the way, we're not told how long after the betrothal, Mary is found to be pregnant. And found by whom, we're not told. This is just what the text says. It's, she was found to be pregnant. Likely first her parents, but at some point, Joseph either hears the news or he sees the news. And imagine the heartbreak. My fiancé, the one that I was planning to not only marry but spend the rest of my life with and to build a family with, she's betrayed me. She's been disloyal. The loss and pain this man must have felt. And on top of that, the humiliation. Likely everyone in town would be assuming that Joseph and Mary had now decided to begin acting out of selfishness. Each of them treating each other as means towards just giving each other pleasure or perhaps even acceptance. Rather than understanding sexuality as a good, good gift from God to worship God through coming together the way that God, that God has uh, given them within the confines of covenant marriage, now Joseph is done. His reputation is shot even though he has done nothing wrong. But the Hebrew law provides him some recourse. The law would have allowed an innocent man like Joseph to publicly take his betrothed to court. Then if he were to win this case, to take all the wedding dowry, even if he chose, seek the death penalty. But verse 19, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So in good conscience, Joseph has decided he can't any longer marry Mary. But because he's a just man, or some of your translations may say because he's a righteous man, he wouldn't shame her. He decided not to do this publicly. He would just get it done quietly. Because it wasn't only his reputation that would be shot, hers is even in worse shape. She would never marry again. She would be a single mom for the rest of her life, and certainly in the first century, this would caused sidelong glances and whispers every time she went down the street. So even though Joseph wouldn't marry her, he nevertheless would love her. He would protect her in her, as much as he was able, her reputation. He had the opportunity to publicly vindicate himself and his reputation, but then willingly self-sacrificed for her good without any hope of her reciprocation. So he's acting righteously and in love by deciding to just do this quietly. But then God shows up. God shows up and Joseph is, as he's thinking about all these things, as he's wrestling back and forth with what he should do, he's tossing and turning in bed in sadness and in loss and perhaps even anger. Then he eventually drifts off to sleep and an angel appears. Verse 21, the angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph finds out just as he's gone about the betrothal in patience and godliness and selflessness and in self-control, so has Mary. 
She's not only remained faithful to Joseph, but the Lord has remained faithful to her. It's not another man who has brought about the pregnancy, but the Holy Spirit. But here's where I think we get to this part of the story and just blitz to the manger. It's like we assume Joseph like pops out of bed. He grabs his hat and his coat. He runs to Mary's parents' house. He bangs on the door. He's like, I got to talk to Mary. I had a dream. The angel told me, you're in the clear. Let's get married. But like if he was wrestling with what to do before the dream, I can only imagine that this brings about more uncertainty as he opens his eyes and says, what? Now what? Because he's already committed to love Mary, he's given up the, pub the public opportunity to vindicate himself, but now, now, to choose to marry her would now bring even more shame upon himself and into his household. Now, instead of the glances and whispers being reserved for Mary, he's now having to think through, do I want the glances and whispers on me for the rest of my life? Which then, out of love, out of self-sacrifice for his own name and reputation, he does. He chooses to love over humiliate. He chooses Mary over self. He chooses shame for himself rather than honor for himself. This is a romantic Christmas story. Certainly not like a cheap and terrible portrayal of love in love actually, which teaches that if you're attracted to someone, even if you've never even talked to them, uh, just if you like them, if you're physically attracted to them, it must be because the cosmos have aligned it to be. And, you know, like the only thing that is preventing your perpetual bliss and happiness for the rest of your lives uh, is perhaps just a cruel twist of fate or you just haven't told that person. So you have to tell that person in this public display of affection. Just make it as grand as possible and then you'll be happy for the rest of your life. Love Actually, everyone. Um, anyway, don't watch that movie. You, I mean, it's fine if you want like, to feel good, the romantic kind of infatuation kind of love. All you need is love with trombones and trumpets. But this isn't love. This is an infatuation. It's just emotions. No one is choosing to self-sacrifice. No one is choosing the way... Uh, that I ought to care for you more than myself. I'm just choosing, be, choosing you because of the way that you make me feel. It's no different than Bluebell. And this is exactly the way we've talked about how we innately treat people as, as commodities, as things, as resources, as things to make me happy. As long as people keep making me happy, I'll keep loving them. As long as Dion's keeps making delicious people, pizza, <laughs> it's sausage, I think. I'm pretty sure most of it's pork. Uh, but as long as they keep making delicious pizza, I'll keep going there, give them my money, and they'll give me the pizza. It's just an exchange. But we treat people much the same way that we treat pizza. As long as it's good and they're good, as long as these people are a net positive on my happiness, I'll keep feeding in. I'll keep doing what it takes to keep them making me happy. That's not love. It's just self-interest. So what I'm proposing, if Tripp's definition is right, then when people are really awesome and I'll keep loving them, I'll keep caring for them, well, then that's actually not love. 
But love is an active and self-sacrificial decision to prefer one another, to prefer another, to consider someone to be more significant than yourself, even when that person is really, really difficult. That's love. And so Joseph chooses to bring a wife into his household that will bring a whole train of shame behind her. And because of love, he willingly chooses to do this. It's not romantic infatuation. It is love. And he also adopts a son into his home that doesn't share a shred of his DNA. When Joseph would later name Jesus, he is saying, though I am not your biological father, you will be my son. Though you have a heavenly father who is greater than me, I will care for you. I will protect you. I will be your father. And it's this remarkable man who would then teach Jesus to use the saw and the hammer. It's this remarkable man who would teach Jesus the scriptures. It's this remarkable man who Jesus, as a toddler, would first say the word Abba. He would call him Father. This man. And Joseph does so at just great cost to himself. Not only taking on the shame that comes with marrying Mary and adopting what most people would assume was an illegitimate child, but think about where the story picks up where we left off last week. Because of Jesus, Joseph had to leave his name and his carpentry clientele, all of it behind when the family flees to Egypt to start over from scratch with nothing, nothing. He's got a brand new wife and a baby, and they move to a foreign country with nothing. Identifying with Jesus has always meant shame and perhaps even danger from the world. So if ever we've got a biblical example of human love, Joseph is it. And it's through Joseph's love and adoption that Jesus actually becomes the legitimate heir to the throne of David. Joseph, son of David, the angel calls him. Joseph is of the tribe of Judah. It's through adoption that Christ becomes king. Amazing. So what might an increased desire to love, to love those who cannot or will not reciprocate, what might that look like for us in the next month or so? For many, it might be choosing to love difficult family members whom you only see this time of year. It might be choosing um, when you need to share the bathroom with your cousins uh, to willingly and eagerly and thanklessly clean their hair out of the sink. To prefer their getting the hot water even though you're left with the cold. You don't mind cleaning up their mess or the dishes so that your aunts and uncles and your cousins and your nieces and nephews can keep playing cards or continue watching the game. I need to hear that, especially when I go home to my hometown or with my in-laws, that my family does not exist to clean up after me, but I for them. Your uncle with his wild political opinions. You actually aren't required. Like, there's no law requiring you to correct him, to correct how ridiculous his politics may be, right? Getting angry at how wrong he is actually isn't love. 
Maybe with your hours and hours and hours of vacation free time, it's choosing to love others instead of using what they look like on your computer screen. Love others. Don't use others. Maybe it's giving sacrificially. Buying 10 fish out of the Baptist, Baptist Global Response Catalog. 10 fish for three bucks. And going with that comes training and how to create your own fish farm. Or I think it's a pair of rabbits for $20. Or $10 provides one night of safety for young women. These are great things to think through and flip through with your family. Maybe it's giving sacrificially toward the fundraising efforts of several of our couples here at Christ Church who are moving and thinking towards their, an adoption of their own. Perhaps, perhaps for the very first time in considering the adoptive fatherly love of Joseph, it might be thinking towards an adoption of your own. Considering with your spouse or through in your community of what the foster care system might look like. That is self-sacrificial love. In our GCs, all of us are considering how to better serve and love the marginalized in the city. And is it easy to love many of these folks? No. Oftentimes, the time and money spent is a net negative on what we think is our own happiness. But if loving all people was always a net positive... Like everyone in the city would be just jumping at the chance to like hang out with this homeless man who is trying to get, his, get back on his feet. Everyone would be lining up to invite this uh, international student over for dinner or lining up to hopefully get at the front of the line to play dominoes with an older lady at a retirement home who won't remember your name next week when you play with her again. But this is why love is required. Not just the feelings that you make me feel, but self-sacrificial love. Christ Church, as we turn the calendar on 2017 and move towards 2018, let's, let's recalibrate our love for the city. Recalibrate our love for folks in the city who are perhaps difficult to love. If it was easy, if, it, if, all, if all it required was just infatuation and the feelings that you make me feel, everyone would do it. Even the Gentiles live selflessly. That's a paraphrase of Jesus. But only those who have received the Spirit, who have understood and felt and experienced the love of God through Christ, can now love the way that he has loved. But why? Why do we want to recalibrate? Why do we want to think about loving the city, loving each other, preferring one another, all of these things? Why? Because we're Christians and that's just what we're supposed to do? Because if we love better in 2018, God will be happier with us? Because it's Christmas and just love is in the air? No. No. Because of what fueled the fatherly love of Joseph, which is the fatherly love of God. And we don't know of Joseph's life history, his personal understanding of the love of God. We don't have a, really any of his backstory. But if it was unclear to him before, the angel makes explicitly clear what God is doing in this dream. And not just with their own small and an increasingly unusual family, 
but for humanity and the entire world. The angel tells Joseph in verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. I love the line that we sang earlier from God made low. And now a virgin bears a son. The time to save the world has come. Since the fall of Adam, the time where humanity first said, for the very first time and through the rest of their history, they said to God, I will not sit under your rules for me. From that time, not even, even before that, since eternity passed. Eternity passed. God has always planned to save and redeem a people. And now, now, the time to save the world has come. To save, their, save the people from their sins. All of us, each day of our life, chooses to love ourselves over and against the God who has created us. All of us, every day of our lives, chooses to love ourselves over and against other people whom God has created. And the Bible calls this sin the love of self, making ourselves the commander of our own lives. Elevating ourselves to be the arbiter of what is right and wrong in the universe. Hating and exploiting others to selfishly promote ourselves. And Jesus, he's come to save us from all that. He's come to save us from our sins. If if Tripp's definition of love is true, then we have no greater example of love than that of the triune God's plan of salvation. Jesus willingly self-sacrificed just as we started this service with in Philippians 2, he emptied himself. He did not consider his divinity, his place in heaven, a thing to be held on to selfishly, but willingly self-sacrifices by taking on human flesh to the point of death, even death on the cross. We'll get to, when we get back to the Gospel of John in January, we'll read later on that greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friends. There's not a greater love in the universe than that. And Jesus shows that to be true. Jesus sacrifices his entire life for our good, requiring no reciprocation from us, requiring infinitely more than we deserve. Like, are you believing this? Are you believing this? Either perhaps for the first time tonight or in increasing ways every day of your life, that we don't have anything to offer by way of good works. In fact, the only thing we have to offer is more condemnation from God and more alienation from him. Imagine the luck we've just stumbled into. This is incredible. Only the Bible doesn't call it luck. It calls it grace. And that we, the only reciprocation that is required of us is to just bring what one of my favorite pastors just repeatedly says over and over, just the empty hands of faith, of saying, I have nothing to offer. I am selfish. I'm lazy. I'm often tepid and half-hearted. I'm wooed by desires here and there. I'm led by my appetites. I'm manipulative and exploitive. I live for myself. I am a sinner. But Jesus, he is not. And I have nothing to offer, but I'm just going to grab onto his ankles and he's going to drag this tepid, selfish, 
manipulative, weak, and beat up man into the very throne room of God. Why? Because he loves me. God through Christ. And he brings me into his throne room, not to just be accepted, not to just give me a a blank page to start over with, but he brings me into the very throne room of, of God to be an adopted son of the high king of heaven. What luck! What grace! What love! This is incredible. The fatherly love of God, just as Joseph named Jesus, bringing him into his family by adoption, we professed from Isaiah 43 together earlier, That for those in Christ, God has called us by name. A father pronounces his authority over a son or a daughter by naming them. And God does those for those in Christ. We become his, though times can become extremely difficult. We are constantly pestered by sin and doubt. He will not let us go because we are his He has named us in Christ. He loves his children despite their sin because of Christ. And it was that way since even before his birth, Jesus of heaven is born into shame, into the shame of a supposedly illegitimate birth and into a barn surrounded by farm animals and feces. The high king of heaven, his first breath, this is what he is surrounded by. He comes in shame, he lives in shame, and he dies in shame on a Roman cross. And the shame doesn't even begin there. Go back through his genealogy that Matthew shares in chapter 1. This genealogy includes adulterers, it includes murderers, it includes outcasts, it includes prostitutes. One pastor says, the family Jesus comes from anticipates the family he has come for. This is who he comes from, in shame, to save and to create a family of shameful sinners who leave their shame behind. Are you guys hearing this? This is amazing grace, amazing love. The love of God, we often sing, is greater far than any tongue or pen could ever tell. No one could ever write such a poem or song to be able to explain. I'm trying. I'm trying my best here to explain the love of God. I can't do it. Incredible that Christ would come to be Emmanuel, God with us, that God would not only create, but then reconcile and redeem and restore a family to himself and then live with them forever. And that's why Christmas love stories, which are removed from or divorced from the love of God through Christ, are just eternally sad. They're just sad. If the encouragement, after you stop the movie, we watched them up at Christmas Carol last night, it's great, I love it, but it's sad. It's like the spirit of Christmas is what's supposed to prompt us to love others. What in the world is the spirit of Christmas? Like when it snows outside or something? Like whenever you hear, baby, it's cold outside, the creepiest song ever? Like we're trying to manipulate others uh, (laughs) to love them, right? Uh, That's what's supposed to make me love others? That's nonsense. But if we've experienced the love of God through Christ, love so amazing, so divine, it demands my life, my soul, my all. 
everything I am, the love of Christ compels me towards the love of him out of gratitude and renewed love of God each day seeking to more and more obey and follow him. And as Christ preferred others to himself to be preferring others to myself, to consider others, every single one of you and those outside of this building to be more significant than myself. For many, the holidays can be a time of sadness, especially when we've been told our entire lives that Christmas is about mistletoe and romance, or even that Christmas is about family and Christmas is about shared traditions. These are all good things. None of these are ultimate things. None of these are the Christmas spirit, being with family. Those are good things, not ultimate. So families, be aware of those who have just perhaps moved to Albuquerque and they're away from family this Christmas. Invite them into your homes to be with your family. Single folks, be aware of the widowed in our church and vice versa. Let's all be aware of one another and to prefer one another to consider others to be more significant than ourselves or our own kingdoms or even our own families and our own traditions. Might it be for the sake of God through Christ and his kingdom, our high king of heaven who has come as a baby, born in straw and surrounded by cows and pigs and sheep, might we respond in the same kind of self-sacrificing, preferring others kind of way for his sake and for the sake of the gospel being made known throughout the nations. Let's pray. Born thy people to deliver, Christ, you were born a child and yet a king. Jesus, you were born to reign in us forever, our Emmanuel. Now we pray thy gracious kingdom bring by thine own eternal spirit, Jesus, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us, your people, to thy glorious throne. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www dot Christchurchabq dot com.